Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, if you don't know this woman, she's uh, she's a very talented writer. She recently won the P the Polanka Award. For those who aren't familiar with it, yes, applaud for that. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. The Polanka Award is the Philippines version of the Pulitzer. You know, so that's a really, 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 really big deal. Okay, and we're very happy to have her here. Um, she's going to be interviewed by the fine filmmaker Will Tiao. So here we go. Thank you. Come on. So we'll sit over here. Over here. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Will Tiao. I call myself a friend of uh, Mari V and her husband John in the back. Um, just a short introduction of how I even know these two. We met, uh, gosh, it's been 17 years. And <laughs> uh, I was on a, we were on a Fulbright scholarship to Manila. I'm not Filipino myself, but um, was studying there. And um, most of us who were Fulbright scholars were just out of college, very grungy. And uh, here comes this fabulous couple <laughs> out of, you know, who arrived. And we were all like, oh my gosh, who are these people? She looked like Miss Philippines. <laughs> And he looked like Mr. Philippines. <laughs> and we were all, you know, really, you know, kind of blown away by their suaveness. And um, over the last, you know, 16, 17 years, we've gotten to know them pretty well. And um, this novel is, uh, you know, really a culmination of a lot, you know, a lot of stuff that I've learned uh, about the Philippines, about Philippine society. And I thought, I think Marivy has done an extraordinary job of, you know, taking um, all all the different issues that perplex not just the Philippines but a lot of countries in the world regarding class and religion and denial and all sorts of you know huge themes and and so I, I thought we'd start just by you know introducing Marivy a little bit just asking her some questions so you guys can get to know a little bit about her background before she then um, uh, does a little reading so um, so Marivy this this book is about um, two women um, one from, I guess one would say, Manila High Society. And, um, uh, and, and another who is uh, kind of from more of the working class and uh, becomes eventually a mail-order bride. I know you yourself, 
come from, I guess one would say, <laughs> you know, more of the high society <laughs> aspect. And, um, and I'm curious, you know, what, what gave you the impetus to, to tell this story? Well, I mean, I came from a very comfortable background, but then we moved to the United States and then we were no one. Oh, I was no one. You know, in the Philippines, everybody wants to know, like, they place you by figuring out, like, who you're related to. So one of the things that's really important for Filipi Filipinos in Manila is they want to know what your last name is, and that way they know where you're from, which province you're from, maybe they're related to you or married into your family, and that's how people situate each other in relation to others. Um, but you come to America and everyone is from somewhere else, and not just that, but they're different minorities, they're different, like, and then, you know, they're the Anglos, and it's just, there's just no way anyone's gonna ask you what's your last name and understand where you're from. So, um, so I wanted to capture that kind of being anonymous and kind of floating, and at the same time I wanted to understand how you know people come to this country and they just you know they find different things depending on where they were coming from because whatever you experienced in the past kind of dictates how you're gonna see everything in the present and the future and I think that's kind of what I was trying to portray in the story so um one of the really rich things that comes out in the books is, is the is the depth of the characterizations and um, I, I likened when, at least when I lived there, and I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but the Philippines felt a lot like the Deep South to me. I mean, kind of the landed gentry families, and you know, kind of the uh, the working class, and and I thought, you know, talk to us a little bit about some of these characters, and um, like, what was, you know, where did they originate from? What was your idea behind each specific one? Let, let's start with the two main characters, Amparo uh, and Beverly. Um, in, in the case of Amparo, I guess she has a closest, she has, um, you know, the kind of context that's closest to what I was familiar with growing up. She went to, like, you know, a private Catholic school. She grew up in a very conservative, relatively affluent family. Um, so she had a certain worldview that was very traditional until something happens to her and then she has to leave. Um, in the case of Beverly, Beverly was basically uh, the love child of, you know, anonymous parents. She doesn't really know what her providence is. And because she's not placed in the society there, she has nothing to lose when she moves to America. And she thinks, well, anything's better than this. I might as well marry into something that I hope will be, will bring me fortune, which was the mail order bride situation. So, um, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I, I'm an interpreter, and one of the things I do is I interpret for people under duress, and when the economy went south, all the domestic violence went up, because apparently someone explained to me, Ninochka Roska explained to me, that um, when, you know, when people are, you know, are having a hard time with money, they try to offload, you know, dead weight and mail order brides are dead weight because they can't really do anything, they're fully dependent on you and whatever problems you had in that marriage are going to be exacerbated by the lack of money. And then also because like a lot of jerks, they can't find regular wives the regular way they go out and buy one through the mail order bride matchmaking system. And yeah, so that's essentially what the other character found when she moved here. So are you saying based on your translation work, this was based on a true story? Yeah, it was actually based on a lot of true stories. Um, I realized that after a while there was like, you know, this pr pattern emerging where 
like um, like there's one really sad story where this woman had gotten pregnant by her American husband and then he said why don't you take a visit to the Philippines just a vacation I'll pay for the ticket she went home she didn't realize it was a one-way ticket but and this is like a real story like and so she cobbled together whatever money she could borrow from her friends and family and she flew back and then things got really bad um, and that's when she I first encountered her she was being processed into a you know a shelter for abused wives and but she was still kind of hopeful she was like is this really what love is you know I really I love this man I didn't marry him for the green card I, I, I wanted to come here and so I couldn't believe that he would buy me he tried to send me away and so she was asking me things and clinging to basically a friendly voice and I would never see her again and I said well yeah this is the way it's gonna be you know you entered into well, I didn't go into depth because she was already kind of feeling down. But I kind of knew this it was not going to get any better anytime soon. So, yeah. So, I don't want to make people think this book is a downer because this is actually a very funny book. <laughs> it's got a lot of hilarious um, moments and a lot of hilarious characters. And me personally, my favorite character is the character of Signora Concha. She's, um, she's the mother of the high society um, Amparo. And um, honestly, she reminded me a lot of the Amanda Wingfield character in The Glass Menagerie. She, she just kind of lives in this kind of world that she's kind of created for herself. Uh, talk to us, I mean, she, she has to me, the best lines in the whole book. And um, I, I'm curious, kind of talk to us a little bit about the inspiration for that character. You had to go there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> so, well, my mother's family is like, they're like the master of like the one line put downs. So, like, you know. <laughs> They're just really good at stuff like that. So I grew up like listening to all these zingers and I was like, wow, there's, this is, one day this is going to be really useful. <laughs> so, plus they're all really good like with the cigarettes. Like I grew up thinking that only women smoke because only the women in my family smoked. So the first time my dad picked up a cigarette, I actually laughed and I thought he was gay. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> but um, anyway, so, so yeah, a lot of the mannerisms and the, you know, some of the one-liners are, you know, pulled off or adapted from my mom's family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I know your mom's in the audience tonight, <laughs> as is the rest of your family. And so, uh, well, without further ado, maybe we should listen to a couple of chapters of the book. Not chapters, pages. Pages, pages. <laughs> Everyone's really aware, worried now. <laughs> um, and so, do you want to? Do you want to kind of set up? Well, the first, the first thing you're reading is the beginning of the book. So there's no need to set up because people will know. So I'm gonna stand. Go for it. Yeah, and then. I'm going to take over. Awesome. Thank you. So, um, so I'm going to try to do this without glasses because I'm vain. But if I falter, I'm going to put them on. So I'm sorry. <laughs> so this is in December, December 17, just before Christmas, 1996. Yeah. Marcela was barely thinking when she took a knife from the plate of mangoes and stabbed Senora Concha in the chest. Her thrust lacked direction, so the blade glanced off the collarbone and tore a shallow groove down the capacious bosom before coming to a stop two inches above the right nipple. The wound is messy, but hardly fatal. 
For once, Senora Concha was speechless, not just because there was a knife wobbling under her nose, but from utter disbelief that her longest suffering servant had attacked her. Feeling faint at the sight of her own blood, she fell back against her chair and gazed up at the chandelier. Through the fog of pain, she realized that the chandelier's crystal teardrops desperately needed a good dusting. <laughs> she would have a less surly maid deal with it later. <laughs> Meanwhile, her hands scrambled over the table like a demented tarantula toppling a glass of calamansi juice and a coffee cup in its wake while groping blindly for the servant's buzzer that sat on the table next to the ashtray. Wandering blindly onward, it pushed the Capiz ashtray off the table, which was slowly drowning in blood, caffeine, and citric acid. Finally, her fingers found the buzzer, and she pushed hard. Ding dong, hello? It was the best buzzer a Manila matron could buy, and the one with the least vulgar summons. A doorbell, followed by the suggested response. Ding dong, hello? Trining the laundress emerged from the kitchen and shrieked upon seeing the lurid stains on the newly ironed li table linens. linens. Jusco, what happened to the senora? She looked from her stricken mistress to the cook. Marcela, what did you do? Marcela ignored her, staring fixedly at the senora's lavender robe, where the knife had grown a rapidly blooming corsage of roses. Trining was some, something of a recluse who preferred scrubbing soiled underwear to serving at table because Senora Concha um, habitually mocked her lazy left eye. The eye strayed from its pair whenever Trining was tired or agitated, and given the frequency with which her employers changed clothes, drifting was a daily occurrence. Seeing Senora Concha in such disarray made Trining's wayward eye swing like a pendulum so that she clung to the doorframe, dazed. The view from her one good eye suggested that Marcela, standing so calmly amid the gore, was caught up in some kind of trance. Kinulam siya, Trining gasped, declaring to no one in particular that the cook had been bewitched. The Senora already looked dead. Addled by her fickle eye and an apparent murder, Trining fled screaming to the servants' quarters. Her shrieks penetrated the air-conditioned confines of the bedrooms upstairs, interrupting Yaya Esther's attempts to dress Senora Concha's two grandchildren. The nanny had, had herded three-year-old Nico into his older sister's room, intending to get both children dressed and fed before the family driver came to take them to school. Barely five feet tall and bony, Yaya Esther flitted about her young wards with the nervous energy of a sparrow. Listo was Senora Concha's assessment of the Yaya she had hired shortly before the first grandchild was born. The girl is alert. Never mind that she's nothing to look at. She had told her, her daughter-in-law Liliana at the baby shower, she will serve you well for decades. Esther had made good on the senora's promise until that Monday when the laundress's hysterics ruptured the morning calm. Yaya Esther, why is Trining yelling? Pia asked, twisting her head in the direction of the noise and undoing the braid the nanny was weaving. Is Mamita scolding her again? I want to see, I want to see. Nico scrambled to the door. She's not supposed to talk back to Mamita. Hi, Nico. If you do not stop yelling, I will tell you to your mama. 
Esther grabbed the boy's pajama pants, halting his leap for the door. She pulled him in so close that Nico could smell the dried fish she had eaten for breakfast. You and Pia stay here. No going outside, promise. Only your Yaya Esther can find out why that training is making a scandal downstairs. The children giggled as the, as the nanny wrinkled her beak-like nose at them and pursed her lips in the direction of the, of the bed. Under Esther's relentless glare, they retreated to the pillows and promised to stay put until she returned. Jamming bobby socks and hairpins into her pockets, the nanny flew out of the nursery room, ready with a few choice words for the scandal-making laundress. She leaned over the banister and nearly fell head first onto the steps below upon seeing the senora sprawled in her armchair at the head of the dining table. Senora Concha's mouth sagged open as though she were snoring. Hennad hair cascaded from her widow's peak, standing in stark relief against the pallor of her skin. Only the Castilian nose remained unchanged, stuck up in the air, as usual. Clutching the banister, Yaya Esther hollered for the only male resident in the Guerrero home. Cuya Javier, come help the senora, she is hurt. Amid the hysterics erupting around her, Marcela remained uncannily serene. Seeing that the senora had fainted, she dislodged the knife from the heaving chest, wiped it clean on the checkered uniform, and returned it to the plate of mangoes. Deep in a calm born of blood loss, Senora Concha drifted through the netherland of unconsciousness. The trill of a fan flicking open announced her mother's presence. The fact that her mother had been dead several years hardly bothered Senora Concha, for Doña Lupita was fond of making theatrical appearances and death enhanced drama. Smoke drifted into a languid halo above, above Doña Lupita's bouffant as she sucked in her cigarette, leaving a scarlet rim round its filter. Sit up, Conchitina. Slouching does not become you. Even death had not mellowed Doña Lupita's caustic tone. And by the way, your chandelier needs dusting. She swept an arm skyward, the cigarette twirling dray ribbons at the ceiling. It's just as I suspected. That Marcella is as wicked as her older sister, that slut. Doña Lupita clucked her tongue. Now look what she's done to you. Sus, Mario said. It's impossible to find good help these days. The sudden sensation of weight upon her chest prevented Senora Concha from replying. She opened her eyes in time to see a chubby man pressing a napkin to her breast. Javier, have you no shame? Why are you touching my pizza? You should not be so fresh with your own mother. Indignation caused her to forget her wound. Shh, ma, don't move, Javier murmured. I need to stop the bleeding. She grimaced at the damp curls that clung to her younger son's forehead. Javier had always been so moist. At puberty, he had grown a mustache to hide the perpetually humid upper lip. But even a decade later, this only made him look like an anxious, untenured assistant professor, which unfortunately he was. Fearing that his mother's uncharacteristic silence meant she had gone into shock, Javier yelled for his wife, Liliana! Call Miguel. We can still catch him before he leaves for the hospital. The burble of kids' children's voices upstairs alarmed him. And tell Yaya Esther to keep the kids upstairs. A pale woman in curlers came halfway down the stairs. What on earth is that maid babbling about? I had to slap her when she told the children their mamita was dead. Liliana drew her dressing gown tightly round bony shoulders and peered at her mother-in-law. She doesn't look dead yet. 
Punyeta, can't you see she's bleeding? Just call my brother already. Watch your language, Javi, Senora Concha chided. My language is the least of your worries. Javier put more pressure on her chest. Senora Concha shook her head impatiently. Que escándalo! Javier, the neighbors must not fear about this. No police, no hospital. Miguel has to treat me here. And Pia and Nico, they must not see their mamita like this. Take me to my bedroom. Seeing that the napkin was nearly soaked through, Javier called over his shoulder to the cook. Nanay, please get me another rag. When Marcella did not respond, he turned and then recoiled at the sight of the cook's bloodied hands. Por Dios, Nanay, did you stab Mama? Marcella shrugged and stared at the mangoes. I just wanted her to shut up. Anyone else would have been slapped for insolence, but Marcella was no ordinary servant. Decades ago, when Senora Concha made clear that she could not be bothered with motherhood, Marcella had been compelled to take on the role of nanay. Javier could hardly have struck the only true mother he had ever known. Thanks. Go to the next one? Okay. So you're gonna read another, another slide? I'll read another one, slightly happier. Yeah. yeah. But it takes place in a cemetery. So I wanted to add some kind of context to this. Um, you know, Day of the Dead, uh, All Souls Day, is kind of like Memorial Day for Filipinos, except it happens in a cemetery. Um, it's when people like descend by the droves. Tens of thousands of people show up at the cemetery with their boom boxes and their barbecue. And, you know, they essentially camp out on the tombs and like have, they party for 24 hours. So it's a huge, huge thing. And it becomes a, this kind of carnival for the dead. Um, and so this takes place in the cemetery in the Day of the Dead. Beverly, the, the poor girl who becomes a mango bride eventually, is um, arriving at the cemetery. Her mother has passed away 10 years earlier and she's decorating the tomb. And um, you know she meets another girl who has lost her parents. So, so this is what happens. Alfonso looked Beverly over, her gerbil-like nose twitching with perennial allergies. You look like you haven't had breakfast. Ito, this pandesal was made this morning. She held out a bag of rolls. Also, I think you've lost weight. Are you in love? Alfonso's large eyes twinkled above a raisin-sized mole, perched on her right cheekbone. Who is your nobio? Wala, I don't have a boyfriend. Beverly blushed, anticipating the usual jokes about her uneventful, uneventful love life. Mama taught me not to trust men, you know. Iha naman, they're not all bad. Alfonso clucked, all you need is one good. A minor commotion at the end of the, o of the columbarium stopped her mid-sentence, her mouth forming a startled O. Oh. Turning around, Beverly was surprised to see a vaguely familiar girl smiling as she walked toward them. The girl wore a canary yellow sundress and silver hoop earrings. She carried a sheaf of long-stemmed roses in one arm, like a newly crowned beauty queen. Madre de Dios, can it be? Aling Alfonso whispered, yes, it's Lisa, Lisa Patane. The girl in question had been orphaned seven years earlier when her parents had perished in an apartment fire. Their charred remains had been buried together in an extra-wide niche, just above, just above the one that Clara, Beverly's mother, occupied. Like Beverly, Lisa had been forced to forego a college education and find a job after the tragedy. 
the two orphans had quickly bonded and Beverly looked forward to their annual reunions when the irrepressible Lisa would spend hours, literally, describing her latest romantic escapades. But today, Lisa seemed different, regal almost. She sauntered forward, a clean, an open path up, oh no, I'm sorry, a clear path opening before her as people stepped aside to gawk at the man following in her wake. The gray-haired foreigner stood a head taller than everyone else, long of chin and short of neck, mirrored sunglasses perched on a bulbous nose. As they, the couple came closer, Beverly noticed the sweat crescents that darkened the armpits of his Hawaiian shirt, the Bermuda shorts that bared thick calves covered in pale fur. She wondered whether where Lisa, who worked the cosmetics counter six days a week at Schumart, could possibly have met this man. Beverly! Long time no see! Lisa's voice was higher pitched than usual, her English broadened by an accent Beverly only heard in American movies. Kumusta na Lisa? Beverly greeted her friend, insisting on Tagalog. Who is that old man? Was he a friend of your parents? Lisa's giggle pealed like a church bell run amok. Of course not, ikaw talaga. Lisa pinched Beverly's arms, switching to Tagalog. You know the kano. They always look older than they really are. <laughs> Honey, what did we say about talking Tagalog when I'm around? The man's tone was petulant. Honey, naman, it's so hard to do that when we're in Manila. Lisa offered the man a pout. Scarlet lips just leveled to his chest. Don't you worry, love. When we go to America, I will speak English to you all day, every day, just for you. Okay? <laughs> As she winked at Beverly, her eyeliner left a blue smear upon her cheekbone. Beverly, I want you to meet my fiancé, Lydell Kincaid III. <laughs> fiancé? Beverly could barely hide her disbelief. How could Lisa have found a fiancé to provide the happily ever after ending that her mother Clara had promised her? Did her friends, two dead parents, pull greater weight among the gods than her never married mother? You didn't even have a boyfriend when I saw you last year. Lisa shrugged, slinging an arm around Lydell's hips. When it's true, love, there's no point waiting. Right, hon? She looked up at Lydell, who puffed out his barrel chest. You betcha, sweetheart. Lydell jerked his hand at Lisa and clicked his tongue. This here is my girl. I knew it the minute I saw her standing there holding all my, my letters tied up in a red ribbon. Lisa Talaga, Beverly grinned. You stole that trick from an old Sharon Conetta movie, didn't you? <laughs> Lisa let out a delighted yelp and for the briefest moment reverted to the giddy teenager Beverly remembered. Recovering quickly, she chirps, Beverly's being silly. She thinks magic only happens in the movies. Lydell took off his glasses, looking Beverly over as though she were a used car. I wish she told me you had such pretty friends, Lisa. If I'd known, I'd have brought Hank along. He leaned close enough to Beverly to smell mint, for Beverly to smell mint for the gum he chewed. Hank's newly divorced, too, you know. Could have been a love match. His grin bared teeth, the color of weak tea. Aye, sigh young. Lisa waggled her eyebrows at Beverly. Never you mind. When I meet Hank in Naples, I will tell him to start writing you too. That's Naples, Florida to you. 
Lydell made a clicking sound again. Wouldn't want people to think I was some kind of mafioso. He chuckled at his own joke while the women traded puzzled glances. Beverly stared at the oddly matched couple. Lydell looked to be twice Lisa's age and more than double her weight. And yet she had never seen her friend so ecstatic, nor for that matter so vividly made up. Plum Rouge conjured cheekbones and Lisa's round face and crimped lashes glinted indigo in the morning sun. Quelling her skepticism, Beverly asked, so how did you meet? We were pen pals for six months on Filipina Sweetheart. He came, then he came to visit me three weeks ago and it was instant magic. He took me to dinner, he bought me flowers, he even bought me this dress, can you believe it? And it was so easy. He ga I gave my pictures to this international dating service and in two weeks, two weeks, I got letters from three different men. She pinched her bow's forearm. But Lydell's letters were special. He's a stenotype reporter. At court, you know. Stenotype reporters, they have to write all the time. <laughs> wow. Beverly fixed a smile on her face, unsure what exactly a stenotype reporter was. So when's the wedding? We'll do it in Florida. I wanted Sana to have a church wedding in Manila, but it is too complicated. Did you know that you have to ask permission from the Archbishop of Manila just to marry a foreigner? It's like you Catholics never left the Middle Ages. A sunburst of, sunburst of laugh lines deepened around Lydell's green eyes. So I am a Mormon. Just like Donnie and Marie Osmond, you know. Lydell promised he will take me to Utah one day. Can you believe it? Lisa squeezed Lydell's arm, her nails like cherry lozenges on his papery skin. After he proposed, the agency took care of everything, including my fiancé visa. I quit my job so I could show Lydell around the country before we leave. You know, when Lydell asked me to marry him, he showed me pictures of his house in Florida. Biromo, it has three bedrooms, two bathrooms, and one big living room. One of the bathrooms even has a whirlpool bathtub. It has a garden in back and a lawn in front. I could get lost in that house. <laughs> Lisa leaned her head into Lydell's shoulder, oblivious to the murmurs of bystanders who had abandoned their prayers for the dead to eavesdrop. <laughs> I cannot wait to see it. Suerte mo naman, what luck. Looks like you're moving into a palace. Beverly was surprised at the sudden pang in her gut as she thought of the tight bedroom she shared with her roommate, the mossy shower stall, the roach-ridden kitchen in Cubao. When are you leaving? In two weeks. This is the last time I get to visit Papa and Mama until we come back to Manila again, and who knows when that will be. I brought this for them pala. Lisa looked at the narrow ledge below her parents' niche as though seeing it for the first time. Oh, but honey, our flowers won't fit on that small space. What should I do? Lydell scratched his hairy nape, unconcerned. Figure it out quick so we can leave. This heat is making me thirsty for a beer. Lisa stood the bouquet on the ground and propped it up against the wall of niches, accidentally tumbling over Beverly's candle. Hayaamuna, leave it alone. I'll fix it. Biting her lip, Beverly pulled her mother's modest posy out from behind Lisa's roses, then relit the candle on the, on the, far, the farthest end of the ledge. Clara's niche seemed to recede into the shadow of the gargantuan bouquet. 
Beverly, favor lang. Can you take our picture? Lisa waved the enzymatic camera, pulling Lydell to the side of her parents' niche. This is the closest I'll get to introducing Mama and Papa to Lydell. Sayang, they didn't get to live to see this. They could have come to America with me. Beverly peered through the camera lens, motioning for Lydell to stoop so that she could fit both faces in the same frame. Say green card, Lydell teased, and Lisa giggled, bearing lipstick-smeared teeth. Thank you. Um, one thing, another piece of context, um, who, ex who exactly is Beverly named after? Oh, yeah, she's named after the hills. Her mother wanted her to have like a happier life, so she named her, and she was like a fan of um, American movies. So when she gave birth to this child, she's like, you are going to have a happier life, and I'm going to call you Beverly, like the hills where all the movie stars in America live. <laughs> so... All right. Uh, well, Marvie's going to be, be signing some books, but before she does that, I thought we would open the floor to questions if anybody had any you know, questions, thoughts. I'm not sure if anybody's had a chance to read the book. It just came out a few days ago. So, Yes, John. So my favorite character is actually Doña Lupita. Oh, her. She's lovely. She so is. Who was she inspired from? Who was she inspired from? You're really trying to get me into trouble, but yes. <laughs> Again, <laughs> the book is dedicated to my mother's family. So, <laughs> so, so, but I want to make it clear, you know, it's, it's just the gestures, some quotes taken out of context. <laughs> Pretty much that, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, when I first started writing, um, you know, short fiction for grown-ups, because my first ten books were for children, um, I wrote a, you know, a series of short stories which were really, you know, kind of gothic horror. Um, the title of it was Spooky Mo, which is a really bad pun, and it's a really rude pun, and only the Filipinos get why it's funny and kind of vulgar at the same time. Um, and so. Um, an agent um, who used to work with the Sandra Dykstra agency, which uh, takes care of Amy Tan's uh, books, uh, really liked it and she wanted to represent me. But at the time, they were only looking for novels, I guess, unless you're like Jhumpa Lahiri or Leslie Tenorio, you don't get your first collection of books all short stories published, you start, start with a novel. And so what happened was I, I knew I had to break my fear of the long form. And so I joined this thing um, called NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, where you commit, it's like writing, it's like a marathon for nerds. You basically commit to writing a 50,000 word novel in one month, which is 1,667 words a day, every day for the entire month of November, whether or not you make a turkey. So, you know, at the end of that, you know, month I had like a really bad novel but that was a draft and then I worked on it for two more months I mean two more years and when it was done I called the same agent and I said you know look I have this novel and it was this December and um, she's like okay I'll read it and I said but I want to get the early bird discount to this conference where all these other agents are coming so could you get back to me on the first working day of the next year and then I realized afterwards that you just don't do that with agents but you know Bless her heart, she did. And she said, well, I do foreign rights now, so I can't represent you, but I, I can endorse you to my other colleagues. And so she endorsed me to someone else who eventually became my 
you know, my, my agent, and that agent sold it to Penguin. And the original agent, Taryn, who handles foreign subsidiary, subsidiary rights, eventually sold translated rights for the Spanish edition to the largest publisher in Spain, basically. So, so. And I said, you know, they'll, they should get some kind of a discount because they don't have to translate the whole thing, like all this, the swear words in Spanish, so that's like, make it easier. <laughs> so, yes. What made you title the book you know, it, it was originally it was in the service of secrets, but it sounded kind of like CIA, FBI, and I was like, yeah, there doesn't have a, it doesn't have a ring to it. And then I thought I used to be in advertising, so I just kind of played around with things. And I was like, yeah, you know, mangoes, the Philippines, it works. She's a bride, yeah. It's like a, another name for mail order bride. That's just something I kind of invented, but yeah, I guess you know, that's what it is. Because the matchmaker has this slogan. Um, he says, you know, mango brides are, make the sweetest wives. So, so that's his, you know, that's his mantra when he sells, basically he was selling women to these foreign men. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that would be really nice. <laughs> I can do some voices. I don't think I was really successful with Lydell, but it doesn't have to be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me ask, uh, what's next for you? What, what, um, I know you have a book tour with this book, and you're yeah. going to several other cities. And then um, do you have anything else on the horizon writing-wise? Yeah, I've been, I, I started work on a, on a novel that's set in the 1930s in San Diego that's based on an actual murder trial that happened in a taxi dance hall and they're all Filipino. It'll kind of be like, you know, that movie Chicago, but San Diego. <laughs> and it, it'll be about the anti-miscegenation laws, which at that time basically, you know, it's kind of like Prop 8. It, it prevented um, white women from marrying um, non-white, basically Filipino men. And so all of these Filipino bachelors who are migrant workers would go to these taxi dance halls and pay 10 cents for a minute's dance in the arms of like a white woman who was basically, you know, one step above prostitution. Um, so, you know, it all happened in San Diego. I thought it was just a really marvelous story. And it told, you know, kind of the history, part of the history of Filipinos in California. And I thought it would be another good project to, you know, start on but the research is kind of murder on me right now, so, yeah. Um, I'm glad to know what the, I guess, the background of how you wrote this novel was about, how you said it was based on your um, experiences as an interpreter. Yeah. Um, so just at a conference saying there's a lack of Chicago interpreters, and I, I'm just wondering what type of cases they're dealing with. But I wanted to ask you, were there, as an interpreter, were there any, and, and now bridging it to um, writing, were there any stories um, or experiences, testimonies you went, um, you experienced that um, maybe was too painful to write about? Like, I'm just, mm. uh, I know you don't have to share it, but I'm just wondering how um, you've, you've shifted something that's so serious to something that is um, more lighthearted, like you said, which, which I think it reaches a greater audience, but I, I'm enjoying it, I just wanted to ask. Well, um, it didn't make it into the book because I thought it was a really personal story. I didn't want to, you know, disrespect the people. But one of the hardest, um, it was a very long call that I had to translate for was, he was a, a seaman 
working in, in, you know, on a boat, and he had caught some kind of serious infection, and he was in Canada, and um, he was basically on life support. So that call was like a five-person conference call. I had the social worker, the grief counselor, the soon-to-be widow in Manila, the doctor in the emergency room, and myself, and we were all there to tell the woman, you know, he wasn't going to make it, he was already a vegetable, and there was no time for her to get her visa approved to see him before he passed. And that was really hard because, you know, everything went through, it must have been like four in the morning in Manila. And, you know, the doctor explained as best he could and I translated as best I could and the doctor was like, are there any questions? And she said no. But as soon as he hung up, that's when she started to cry. She was like, and there were these heaving sobs and we were like, well, are you alone? And she was like, I, I have someone, but it was her 12 year old son. That was a really, really hard call, yeah. So I mean, things like that. Like um, my day job is really interesting. I hope I don't get fired from it with this novel. <laughs> that would not be convenient, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, you said you referenced uh, some of the uh, characters um, from your uh, mother's family. Let it go already. <laughs> Should we interview them right now? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, my, one of my favorite aunts, my mother's sister, died. And she would have had the best time because she was actually the source of many of the quotes that I, you know, weren't, was not supposed to be privy to. But yeah. So yeah, so you know, she was a source of a lot of gossip. Um, which is not to say that everything that came in is family gossip. Yeah. All right, uh, Noel. Uh, oh, okay. Um, I'll hand the microphone back to you. Great, thank you. Let's give her, you know, a round of applause. That's really, really, and thank you, Will. Thank you very much, Will. Your work. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.